So the plan didn't change based on who was beside me. The plan was cr- created based on who I knew was going to be there and how what, what I might need to do to um, get the upper hand on them. Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line Podcast, or if it's your first visit, then welcome to the podcast. And again, I have a gap between my athlete interviews, and that's not because I don't have anyone to interview, but it's a case of finding the time and both finding the right guest. In this episode, I'm joined by Keith Lane, the winner of the Kerryway Ultra 2022. And not only did he win it, but in doing so, he set a new course record of 21 hours, 18 minutes and 31 seconds. This was Keith's third time running the Kerryway Ultra, and each time he finished with a podium position. And if you to look back at the results, it's interesting to see that with his first attempt, he finished second in 24 hours and one minute. The following year, he finished almost one hour faster, but in third position. So this shows how increasingly competitive the sport is becoming. Now, the world of ultra running is changing. People are starting to pay a lot more attention to their training and they're realising that if they do the right things leading up to the event, they will give themselves the best chance at success. And this is partly what I want to talk with Keith about. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of questions that... I pose a lot of stuff that I would post, Keith, questions. And that actually gets me thinking. And it was after a recent back and forth that I thought, let's pause this and start again, but we'll record it. So, Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to getting to that conversation. Now, your ultra-running history is very brief, and it doesn't seem as if you've done a lot to get you to this point. You come from a GAA background, and for anyone listening outside of Ireland, that's Gaelic football. How hard was it to transition from the sport you were doing? I think you were a goalie. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, uh, I played. Um, I played in goals um, in both soccer and Gaelic. So from about the age of twelve up, and at about fifteen or six, sorry, about sixteen or seventeen, I probably started playing adult football again, both soccer and Gaelic. And um, I think in around my twenties, I think the Gaelic took the driving seat and the, the soccer took the back seat. But um, I played for my local club, Navan Matnis, for for about eight or nine years there. Um, I didn't make a constant. It wasn't like I made a decision at any one point in time to say I'm going to stop playing football now and go running. But to be honest, John, the goalkeeping it's it's a peculiar position. Um, it's it's a it's a great position, but. I suppose after a couple of years, I stopped. I stopped enjoying it. I stopped loving the matches. Um, I love the training. I love the, the. I love the hard work, and I love turning up on a Tuesday night in the soggy wet pitch and putting in the hard yards. I think it was always um, probably naturally kind of athletic and fit and healthy, but um, certainly wasn't the most skillful. And unfortunately, when you're a goalkeeper, there's very little margin for error. So I think uh, as the years progressed, I think I carried over a few of the, the bad performances and uh, I think it started weighing me down a bit. And towards the last couple of years of playing for Levin O'Matneys, I just felt that something needed to change because it was affecting me uh, both on and off the pitch. Um, as I said, I just, it, was, it, was, it was probably a bit hard on myself. Um, I couldn't let go of a bad game or you know, any sort of kind of error I made. Even if we won the match, I'd be frustrated with myself. So... I think after a couple of years, I've not really known why I was feeling the way I was. I just said, you know what, 
something needs to change. So I took a step back from the football. Um, but I didn't go directly into the running. Um, I spent probably a year or two kind of just figuring out what I wanted to do was spending a lot of time in the gym. And um, I heard of these like Helen Back races and Gale Force West. And I was doing those sort of events and having, having lots of fun doing them as well. Um, but I think it was in around 2011, uh, a friend of mine, he was training for the uh, Belfast Marathon. And um, he asked me to go on the one of his last long slow runs, you know, just before the taper. I think it was a 20 mile run. So I tagged along, not knowing much about it um, or what was involved. And yeah, I loved it. I, I died. You know, I couldn't walk for a few days after because it was the longest run, longest run I've ever had at that point in time. Uh, but I was totally bitten by the bug. And um, so from that point on, I started kind of thinking about running. And I think it was 2012, I trained for my first, I actually went back and did Belfast Marathon as well in 2012. Then I went on the double marathon later that year. And from that point forward, I started looking at ultra marathons. So in 2013, I did the Connemara Ultra and I got completely hammered by that. I ran practically my same marathon pace for, that I got in Dublin, so it was just about a three-hour marathon, and I ran that pace for the first two-thirds of that race and completely fell apart in Linan and had to hobble my way uh, back to the finish line for like 13.1 miles, which was a very humbling and painful experience. But the, um, the, the, the ultra stuff, it, was just, it just appealed to me. So I I signed up for the there was a race at the time called the Stowmad Ultra. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes, that's a, along the River Barrow, stairs down in Gregory Manor. Along the River Barrow, yeah, yeah. It was a two day event. Uh, I think the first day was about sixty two kilometers, uh, all along the Barrow from a tie down to um, a small town in Kilkenny, and then the second day was a kind of fifty five k race up around Mount Leinster and back into that into that town. The, the name escapes me. But it was your cumulative time. So I came second on both days. Um, so, but my times combined, you know, I, I won that race. So that was my, you know, kind of my second ultra. And I got a, fir- I got a podium, which I kind of thought was ridiculous, but very exciting. Um, so then 2014, I signed up for a challenge over in the UK. It was called London to Brighton. That was 100K. And I went over to that and gave that a crack. And I finished top in the top 10 on that. And again, just in around 10 hours for the 100K and, uh, again, no real reference point, not knowing if that was good or bad, but I I knew I, I felt good for about 85k and only kind of really struggled in the last 15k. So again, I was kind of um, enjoying it and kind of on, I felt it was on this curve, a learning curve, but also into something that, that was kind of that was reasonably good at. But um, well, let's pa- let's let's, well, let's pause you there for a second, right? Just yeah, so we okay. don't we don't get too far ahead of ourselves now. Because yeah. I have like, there's questions in my head, and but as we're going, I'm actually losing some of the questions now. So, <laughs> so no, no, this is because I, I didn't know you, you had done London to Brighton. So I'm just wondering how aware of the ultra running scene in Ireland were you? Like when you did the Connemara Ultra as your first mm-hmm. ultra distance race, that's a very yeah. challenging way to start. And if you start yeah. with a very challenging race, you can come away with. A bad, a really, really bad experience, especially as you get towards the end and you're being overtaken yeah. by people, and you get to the finish yeah. line, and then your first thought might be never again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a bad experience at Connemara. Like I, as I said, the wheels came off after Lenan, and 
it was a, a horrific last 13 miles but like and on on the journey home like sorry and, and the journey towards the finish line i was never running again i felt so like stupid for being there but as soon as i was done i was like that was deadly you know what's next um and but i didn't know much about the, the running scene in ireland i um I was only kind of I was only starting to learn about running, like considering any kind of started training for the marathon in twenty twelve or twenty yeah twenty twelve, but um I like I was buying every magazine I could get. I was online. I was reading stuff. I was like I totally kind of was buying all the you know the the bestsellers, the Dean Canassis books, the Scott Europe books, and all those all those ultra running. So I was I was starting to become aware of it. I wasn't aware of anything. I wasn't even aware of Imre or any kind of the trail running scene. Uh, in Ireland at this stage, I was just kind of finding stuff to do. Um, but um, it's only when I kind of in 2014 or 2013, I was down doing the Ring of Kerry cycle, that that kind of um, charity run, that charity cycle. And somebody in the groups are talking about this Kerry Whale to race and that people ran around the Kerry, the Ring of Kerry, this particular, uh, the, sorry, the Ring of Kerry, yeah. And I just found that fascinating. Uh, I was didn't think I was ever going to do it, but I was fascinated that people could do it. Um, so that was the first time I heard about the really long stuff. But I think I just parked that, you know, in the back of my mind. And as I said, I just went back doing marathons for a couple of years, and it was only in like 2018 I, um, I had a couple. Sorry, after in around 2014, 2015, I started to pick up injuries because, like anybody else, you're new to running. I was probably doing too much too soon. And I started having a kind of a lot of kind of just the, the, the general, you know, tendonitis in the knees, calf strains and all the kind of the fun stuff. But again, if you're willing, there's a there's a learning journey and all that. So you start learning about the body, start learning about the training, the recovery uh, and the rehab and the prehab. So I totally took all that on board and started building that into my training programs. Um, so in 2018, I went up and did the Moan Way Marathon. Um and I came second in that and went back to double marathon, did run the line in 2019 and I came second in that. And that was kind of the when I started kind of really thinking, you know, considering myself a runner. Uh, prior to that, I was probably I was still a footballer who was doing a bit of running and, and finding his way. But just at the end of 2019, I started kind of feeling like, yeah, maybe I should do some more races and actually sign up for one of the bigger ones. Now I, I know that you take the training quite seriously. When yeah. from what point did you get serious with the training? Is is this something that was kind of part of your mentality from your time playing football? Oh, I think so. I think so. I think I, I've always been quite, you know, quite uh, detail orientated and I like planning and you know <laughs> I love a good to do list. Um but I was very lucky, um, John, in, when I started kind of training for the marathon back in 2012, some other friends from Navin uh, were familiar and they'd been to Bernard Dunn up in Trinity. So uh, they, they, got, they put me in touch with Bernard and I went up to Bernard and did the, kind of the, you know, the, the VO2 blood lactate testing. And as I said, I just, I just loved it. I just got so into it. And Bernard, just a wealth of knowledge as well. He was always kind of quick to kind of answer emails or any questions I had. So once I had that and I had kind of a, a, a marathon program that was based around the, the, the heart rate, uh, the heart rate zones, 
and I started learning about the different types of runs. That was it. That's all I've done since. I've I've never really deviate from that. I obviously keep getting tested with Bernard because your your zones can change and it's more so like probably your thresholds can change. And um but that's that's been that's been the kind of the, the, the formula, the structure I've had since twenty twelve. Um what doing this change there in more recent years is as I've gone from marathons into ultra distance and even to the trail stuff that I've been back to Bernard and we kind of build the program with slightly different types of runs. But the structure is still the same. It's still the you know the eighty percent easy, twenty percent hard, ten percent improvements, three weeks on, one week off. The, the, you know the, the basic principles of, of any kind of marathon program, but just now the distances are somewhat longer. Um, but I've always had that yeah that 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 approach to the training and um, yeah. And Bernard is actually how we met. It was through chatting with Bernard, and just as you mentioned there with the training and lab based training. There is a lack of understanding to the specifics and the hard training that is required to progress in these these events. And it's true, I suppose, the knowledge you've been gaining along the way that you've gone from finishing third to finishing first over those couple of seasons. You're kind of learning as, as you go. Now, you had mentioned to me that you had three years of training that are based around the Kerry Way. Yeah. Would you consider yourself to be data driven or data informed? Now, meaning um, by that is, do you do you look back on what you've done and then decide on what you're going to do next based on that information, or do you go out and actually, just as I asked that question, I suppose your training sessions are data driven because you're following heart rate zones and that, but then when you go into your race, you're probably data informed. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually probably a good way of describing it. I I do. I'm I'm very meticulous with my training sessions. Like I don't do high mileage. I just don't seem to be able to do consistently high mileage before I start getting injured. But the training, there's 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 no fat in the training program. Like all my runs, even my easy runs, are not that easy, and the hard runs are quite hard. But um, absolutely, the 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 week to week training is very kind of data driven. But when it comes to racing and performance i just try and take all the knowledge i have you know along with the maybe nutrition nutritional information i have and you know like my my kind of my approach to my race plans and um, the rate the course information i've gathered in planning for a race and i try and just set out like what i think looks good on race day you know from all those different variables and i always i always factor in race day you know like you can plan um, paces and distances and you can you know you can work off the elevation but if I'm on someone's shoulder or someone's in front of me or someone's behind me you know, if I'm chasing or being chased that adds a dimension that you don't get out of the data okay. that's down to we, your we own, go on to that now case. in a moment but just going say going back to the training now right? the first time I met you we were yeah. we were chatting over Zoom or whatever and I was on yeah. about having a bit of a meet up and you said to me I'm a Kinmashog every Tuesday and every Thursday or something like that I'm there Sultan's such a time. Yeah. I took a chance. I went up on one of those dates and there you were at the exact same time. That was the yeah. first time we met. Yeah. We started on the run and well, it got John, to the point. Can I tell you a yeah. funny story? If, if you remember that day, it was bucketing down yeah. rain. Yeah. It was like for, for the time yes. of year, it was, it was like horrific weather. And I know we were chatting back and forth and I, I like brand it, but I didn't think anything of it because you didn't say you were coming over. 
And I was on the M50 heading for, for Kilmeshog and it was bumper to bumper. And like, I was so close to getting off the slip road and going back to the local park and just doing my run in the park here because I was losing so much time in the commute. And I just, I was just so looking forward to being out in the weather. That I said, oh no, feck it, I'll go, I'll go up anyway. So like, I very nearly had a no-show for that training session. So if you, you obviously turned up there and you were the only person in the car park when I rocked up. And then when you come over and we says hello, like I was laughing, but I was kind of going, Jesus Christ, if I went home, I would have been completely, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't be talking to you now. You wouldn't be talking no, to me now, no. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great, great, great story. But yeah, that was um, my Tuesday and Thursday sessions. Um, uh, well, my Tuesday, I think it was a, that would have been the Thursday. Cause my Tuesday sessions are normally flat and hard at threshold pace. But then my Thursday sessions, I'm down at Kilmishog, more often than not, and I'll do a hard... Right, but tell um, us what that session was. Tell us what that session was because I didn't really get to see it because I <laughs> kind of let you. Oh, you're the stone in my shoe, and I stopped you. You didn't wait. Yeah, me. did you? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So yeah. tell us what that session was. So I, if I remember, in that time of year, so it would have been like ten minute warm up, you know, standard enough. And then it was like twenty, probably about twenty five minutes um, of threshold running. So like hard, hard running from from Kilmashog up if anybody knows the, the route it's quite quite a hilly route but i stick on the fire road over to 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 to, to take knock take the hard right up onto fairy castle it usually takes in around 22 minutes to do that anyway but i just keep going to, to make up the difference um turn come come down recover on the way down and do that a second time and possibly depending on the time of year maybe even a third time uh, but that was that was that was that session. That was kind of that. There are recurring sessions for me anyway. Now, just what you mentioned there about uh, almost turning back and going to the park, we heard a lot of talk about controlling the controllables. So on a day like that, when the weather was really really bad, you probably say to yourself, "Okay, well, it would be just as beneficial, or maybe more beneficial, to go and do a temple run in the local park where I don't have to deal with high winds and heavy rain." that might reduce into a walk with a bit of shelter able to maintain a proper pace so you can control the controllables in training but is there a mm-hmm. difference between like what would you consider to be the controllables then in racing um oh, well i think some of the controllables in racing are the controllables you take from your training so like you know starting out with controllables is is knowing that you've had a race program and a race plan that's worked for you and got you through the race. Um, you, you're in full control of your training in the lead up to a race. Um, so I, I would, I would start there. Um, I think knowing your kit, knowing your kit that, you know, testing your kit, having that kind of worn and t- tried and tested, uh, knowing your food and hydration, they're the things you can control in a race. There's so much you can't, but, um, ha- having those things dialed in, um, are are the reassurance for when I suppose when the wheels come off when things are uncontrollable, knowing the course, knowing as much about the course, its elevation, the profile, where you can run fast, where you're going to have a slog. Um, if you're if you're looking to be competitive, know your opponents, know who you're racing against if you can. Um, and I suppose the biggest thing for me is knowing your own strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and what I mean by that, I suppose, is just you have to be realistic. You have to know what you're poss- what you're capable of doing on the day. You can't run someone else's pace. You can't run hard up a hill because 
because you want to. You can't will yourself um, to the best performance you can give. You have to know the the strengths and weaknesses that you can bring on the race day. Um, and I just think they're all the things that you can control. Um, and the, all that put together is kind of a good, strong race plan. And for me, the, the planning part, it's not, I don't, I'm not trying to plan a perfect race. I don't think there's such thing as a perfect race. All I'm trying to do is take control of everything that I can control. So when stuff does go wrong, because especially as you go up the distances, stuff will go wrong. Things do happen. Uh, that that's all you need to focus on, that you don't have any of the distractions. Nothing else is going to go wrong because you have everything else under control. So, yeah, I think that that's probably what I, what I would focus on in the build-up to a race. With that in mind, the Kerryway Ultra was probably your first, your first race of ultra trail distance. What changes have you made to your kit between the first race and the most recent one? Um, not a lot, I'd say. Um, so I've always been, I've always wore some from, from footwear. I've always wore Sarconi's trail shoes. Uh, now different, different types, and over the years, different models. Um, I'm also been very lucky, John. Um, some a couple of lads from Navin, a shop called Spun Spun Run Spun Cycle. The cyclists will know them as Spun Cycle, and the runners will know them as Spun Run. But uh, the guys there have always been kind of really generous to me and a couple of other local athletes as well from the Navarin area. And they stock Sokoni, so <laughs> I've been very lucky in that front. So what's changed over the years definitely is the types of, the, the different models of Sokoni, but I've always worn those. After that, I've possibly the same vest, the Salomon Advanced 12. Um, it worked in 2020, and it worked in 2020, so it works in 2022. Um, I think I bought a lead lenser back then, that's still working. And, and I'm very happy with that. I'm always telling people to, to pick up that when they're asking about uh, their head torches. I've gone through a few different models of the Garmin watch, but I stick to Garmin. I don't feel the need to change. And a couple of jackets, the Salomon Bonatti jackets, uh, one or two Columbia, one of the heavier ones. And the rest, the rest of the gear, the rest of the kit, I just have a deal I can find online. I think they're the staples of my kit. Um, so... Yeah, they're the only ones I'll try and replace if they if they if they get damaged. But the rest is is, is up for the bargains. Well, let's stay with the Kerryway Ultra a bit now because that's probably your biggest success so far with the ultra running. I'm guessing with a race. Uh, let me see. If you were to look at the top ten finishers of a, a 10k or a half marathon or a marathon, you'd see that their training would be very similar. They all probably would do similar versions of the same thing with with the success being determined uh, by a certain amount of talent. Uh, their, their physiology allows them to run that bit faster. So no matter what you or I do, you can't compete with them. And I think that then if you look at the top 10 finishers of an ultramarathon, in this case we'll say a trail ultra, you will probably find 10 very different approaches so talent alone isn't enough in a trail ultra. There, there's, there's a lot more that goes with it. And I think it's this is when it, uh, the mental side of things come into play. And when we talk about mental strength, it's, it's the ability to kind of deal with distractions and recognise what is feedback and being able to manage the race. So I'm just wondering, who do you think will be the most successful? Is it those who train the best or manage the race the best? 
the best trainers or the best racers? I think it has to be a combination. Like you're right, yeah. When you come to like the short, the short, sorry, the short distance marathon and below, not to the marathon short. That's there's a different physiological type there to be to be the top. But when it comes to trail running, you're right. Like some people, you don't have to be like you know physiologically gifted. But I still think, if you, especially now as the as the as the the competition is improving, the times are coming down. I think you have to have a balance. You have to be putting in hard work and training sessions. You certainly don't have to follow heart rate training like I do. Um, you don't probably have to train as structured as I do. I know a lot of people don't. And you see a lot of the big, you see a lot of the John, you know, the, a lot of the big kind of, um, we say, well-known sponsored elite ultra athletes around the world. The, you know, some of them have a very kind of, you know, um, chilled out approach to their training and their nutrition. But you often find that they've a very, very strong pedigree in their high school or they've done ski, kind of cross ski, whatever, whatever that sport is. And they actually have phenomenal cardiovascular abilities before they start doing ultras. And they might have a little bit more of a, a laid back approach to training now, but they have a phenomenal engine supporting that. Um, and then the flip side, I don't think just turning up to a race with a race game, race day strategy is going to beat somebody who's put in the hard yards over a consistent period of time in the build up to that race. Now, granted, you could have all the training done in the world, and if you don't have your mental strength for the race, somebody could outrun you. And I'm sure that happens, that's possibly happened to me, uh, and could happen to, me, happen to me in the future. But I think it has to be a combination. I think you have to go to the start line feeling confident based on what you put in from a training point of view, and therefore that allows you to be freer and more confident in the in the race itself. And just as we mentioned different training methodologies, I was chatting to Ricky Wynn there recently. Uh, so after the podcast, and I asked him about, uh, I asked him, did he use a heart rate monitor? And he said, no. And that was the end of the conversation. I didn't start saying to him, well, you should use an arthritis. No. What he's doing is working for him. So I'm not Absolutely. going to tell him to do something different. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, look, Ricky, Ricky, Ricky knows a lot about. Ricky knows what he's doing. He's again, he's always learning. He's always he's trying. He's always asking questions like myself and yourself. Uh, but you're right. He's dialed into what works for him. Um, he does a good balance of training. He knows how to mix it up. He has the he has the training principles. And look, it's absolutely working for him. You know, he's had another great year of running. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But a different approach to mine, certainly. Yes, and. That's them. There are many ways to skin a cat. Anyway, now with yeah. the race in twenty twenty, your your first attempt at the Kerryway Ultra, yeah, you probably weren't expecting to finish there. You were, you were, running within yourself, I'd say. Uh well, yeah, yeah. I set my target time. Believe it or not, was so was twenty four hours. I wanted. I was planning to get twenty three fifty five or something to that effect. Um. But no, yeah, like in the race itself, I was just doing my own thing. And we actually had the staggered starts for, because of COVID. And I went out in the second last wave. And then like the elite guys went out in the wave. So 10 minutes after me. And it didn't take them long to come catch us up. Uh, they think that I think the guys came, elite guys came through in around Lord Brandon's, which is about 20k into the race. But I actually tagged onto them and I ran with them kind of just observing, just wanted to feel the pace they were running at and wanted to see what gears we were using. I wanted to see just what, what did they do up the front? And so I ran with them for about 
maybe 10k up into I think it's the Black Valley. I'm not sure what the area is called. That first big climb. And so when we hit that first big climb, or sorry, the second climb, we would over the first valley. I would the first the first climb and into the next valley. And as the second climb, they were pushing the pace. I just thought, nah, look, that's that's not I don't think that's realistic for me anyway. Uh it certainly wasn't for me. So I I kind of just actually actually stopped for a minute. And I let them out of sight because I felt as long as I could see them, I was getting drawn into following them. So I just pulled back. And once they were out of sight, I started running again and just left at that. But I think it was about um, maybe in around Filemore, between Filemore and Waterville, I actually happened across um, Shawnee Clifford. And Shawnee wasn't feeling the best. He was after, you know, his stomach was gone and, you know... Um, I think I realized then that that put me in third place. So I kind of found it a little bit funny, but nothing was changing. And then got into Waterville, kept coming out of Waterville. I passed Ricky and Ricky was having a, Ricky had gone into that race with a knee injury. And um, so passed him and he was kind of wishing me well. And that put me in second place. And Gavin Byrne was out in front uh, by a long shot. And to be honest, yeah, when you say I ran with him myself, I didn't dare do anything else. I was kind of a, a, afraid if I went any harder, I could blow up. Still, I wasn't even sure if I was going to run the distance because it was my first time. So I just stuck to the plan. I kept tipping away the, the miles and um, I was really well supported. I have a, I have a friend of mine, Larry McAvoy, who comes along. He's come every year. I'm so lucky that he does that. But he was just, he was kind of keeping me informed and keeping me fed and all the, all the, the good stuff that crew members do. But um, I think we had a bit of a chat about it um, and we just realised that there would have been no real value to try and charge down for the first place because uh, they still had that 10-minute that advantage on me. So I, even if I was able to catch up, I would have to pass him by 10 minutes to win the race and there was absolutely no guarantee you could catch him, never mind passing by 10 minutes. So the safest thing was just was to uh, make sure I didn't lose seconds to third and fourth and it was Brian Buckley and uh, his friend Remy were coming along and they weren't that far behind either. So my my race was just about not losing second place. And so I just, yeah, I just got through got through the last couple of stages and, and, and made it home. Just missed the 24 hours, 24 hours and one minute. So And 18 yeah. seconds, 18 yeah. seconds. At, eight, at 18 seconds, yeah. Well, my, my watch says 23 hours, 59 minutes. So I'm going with that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there are moments in, in a race that can dictate the outcome and you've actually mentioned a few moments in that race. So there were a lot of opportunities for you to go really, really wrong, but instead you mm-hmm. made the right decision. Now, with sleep deprivation and fatigue as they start to accumulate, your decision making process starts to deteriorate and you're more inclined to make bad decisions or wrong decisions or decisions that would, I suppose, try to bring you to safety and comfort. How do you, how do you think you, you manage to make those rational, right decisions at that particular time? What would you do to maybe prepare yourself mentally for a race like this? Um, That's a long so, question. No, no, but, I, but it's a good question. Um, I, I, I think because you're right, like the sleep deprivation and the fatigue that comes with it, possibly for the carry away, it's less sleep deprivation because you're still kind of, 
you're still going to bed within, you know, like you're not really missing out on a full night's sleep. You're going to go to bed at four or five in the morning, you know, if you get around okay. Um, so it's it's just more the fatigue and the tiredness, and I suppose you're getting a little bit foggy brained. But like again, John, it goes back to I'd have a very very detailed plan of a race. Um, I I'd know, especially to carry. I've had a lot of time to prep for carry away because we've we've had COVID. There wasn't much else going on, so it was like it was like. The only thing I could do was kind of plan for Kerry. So I had a very detailed plan going into it. Uh, broke memory all the sections. And it was like, and then like Lar was great. Lar just was always kind of bring me back to, bring me back to the plan. Um, if we thought about pushing on, we just kind of, he'd be able to kind of remind me of the pros and cons of that, what the risks were. And like, it's just, I don't know. I think, I think just knowing then that, yeah, sticking to the plan was going to bring me in at a certain time, that that was going to get me home. And, like the 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 risk of doing anything otherwise, if I went on pushed on too much, I could just, as I said, it, it could go the, it could go go the wrong way. So I think just being just checking yourself against your plan, just saying look, just just stick at it, um, was what probably what probably works for me. Yeah, well, if it is important to have a plan and mm-hmm. try, but then you have to be flexible with with the with the plan as well. And what I find with a race of really long distance that you have distractions and then there's also feedback. And when I differentiate between them will be feedback will be feeling thirsty and not, or, or looking at your heart rate and all your heart rate is elevated. So that might be telling you that you're getting dehydrated. Or yeah. if you are trying to make decisions, you know that you're getting tired. Or boy, a distraction is worrying about... Uh, how far ahead of me is the person leading it or how far behind me is the person just just, uh, catching me. And Mm -hmm. I find that, and I've seen it happen before, that when somebody is distracted, it can really knock their their confidence if they get overtaken when they're on a low. And that can be enough to actually make them pull out of a race. So you have to be able to manage those kind of uh, episodes. Yeah, that's that's true. I think, and in some ways, so I don't know. Like, um, um, the 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 feedback again, the feedback element of that. Like, you're right. Like, um, but like, uh, that's what I, I I won't say I enjoy. But like, if I notice my heart rate's going up, I'm gonna okay. That's that could be hydration, or that could be the climb you're on, that could just be the accumulation. Like, that's trichardic drift or something. I just start thinking about what could that be, or. Like I suppose other feedback could be then just like could be could be the the type of pain you're feeling, the type of soreness that you have, the, the headache that you have coming on, the nausea. It's like I just start going into well, what what could be driving that? What could be the solution? How long will it take to kind of clear that up? You know, and I just go into that kind of problem solving mode. Uh, in terms of distractions, it's a funny one because if if what I take from your point there is. Um, and in some ways, this is kind of ties into maybe the fatigue and the and the, the foggy brain. But in the three years I've done Kerry, sorry, the, the two previous years, uh, 2020 and 21, I was getting feedback from and it was, right, possibly um, confusion around how close the people behind you were. Okay, and like it was like an imp- impending. They're coming behind you right now. It's very late in the race, and I was very, very sore. Um, but that was just absolutely put me into go mode. So that was, just, that was like a primal instinct that you felt like you were being hunted down, and you were it, going to safety. 
it was yeah like, it, was, it was just like it was like well like it's like that can get in on you if you feel you're being like we could see head towards in the distance and we were like convinced that these guys are coming strong it was actually there remember last year with Ricky and he was we're still with each other about 180k into it and we both saw his head torch and he was like man we gotta go and that that could have because of I was quite sore towards the end of last year I'd gone into the race with a bit of an injury and really struggled from kind of file more on um that could have broke me and I could have kind of given up to say well you know what um I'm only going to get towards so who cares you know fourth fourth is fine and you probably have that thought for a second but then he just kicks in and out of nowhere, I was kind of back to, you know, kind of legging it um, around the trails, uh, heading back to Clarny. But, you know, in other races as well, I, I ran the Morn Way uh, earlier this year, the, the Morn Way Ultra. Uh, it's, it's an 84K race. And like that, like with all the planning, I still got it wrong. I went out too fast in one of the midsections and I got lost and took a wrong turn. And that heightened me. I, I heart rate was through the roof. I ran down a big steep hill, got to the halfway point, and I realised I was definitely, I was definitely a kilometre and a half short, and the drop bag wasn't there. So there was a bit of a scramble to try and find my drop bag. It's only then I realised I had detoured, so I had to go back to where I came off the course, which meant a big kind of climb back up a hill. I had to had to you know kind of cover the course in full before I turned back, and lost track of my hydration, lost track of the calories I was taking, lost track of the caffeine and sure, I gave myself a gut bomb. My legs completely went dead because of all the running around the high pace and I was completely in the bin. Um, to the point, I even texted one of my friends, I voiced out one of my friends telling them that I was like DNF and that's it, I was done, you know. And I think if anybody was around me, I probably would have asked them to come and pick me up. Uh, not that they could because I was in the middle of the mountains. But... You know, that happened, and as all that kind of was going on, it was just, <laughs> it was possibly the worst racing experience I've had. But for me, I just start going into, well, walk now for a minute, drink this bit of water, you know, um, eat this bit of food, and then I started back jogging. I think I'd lost maybe first place at that stage. Um, and then just start tipping away it again. And like giving it maybe 30 minutes of that kind of really crap experience, you know, of still feeling, not feeling great. And eventually the legs came back and I got back at the first place. And I certainly didn't. I had, I was on track for the course record there as well. That was my target for that race. But um, that was at the window. So my, my, my B plan was just to win the race. And I got back at the first place with about, I'd say, maybe 20k to go and then held that. So that was like, that was kind of probably, that was more of a successful win than to carry away because I had that kind of, that that scenario in the middle of that really kind of threw me a curve and really had me kind of um, dead in the water. So, um, but that that sort of feedback, John, I don't know. Like it can, it could, it could, I suppose, it could lead you to to pulling out. But my instinct is always more so just to try and figure out what's going on, what could cause it, and what can I do to resolve it. And you just maybe think of something there that always puzzles me. I'd be, I'd be wondering why do some people quit when they can continue? And then others will continue when they they should be quitting. I think some people when it's it's just not going their way, yeah. they just decide yeah, just throwing throwing the towel, and they yeah. they're not able to embrace discomfort. They don't know how to listen to their body. Uh, they're I suppose ex- accepting an inner doubt. Maybe it's that the the ego was getting bruised that they're not achieving what they wanted to. So it's it's easier to step off and come up with some kind of a, 
know, a reason that kind of suits your yeah suits your narrative. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny one. Like I don't, I don't have any hard and fast rules. I don't have like a you must not DNF mantra or anything. No, like I, that. I well, and I think there's also there's also those people who continue when they should quit, and that's somebody that is injured. But yeah, what, what yeah, I think yeah. myself is if if you were convincing yourself just to stop, you're training to stop, you're training to give in. Well, boy, if you know that you can uh, continue, you you go until you're until you're timed out, because that's mm. like we talk a lot about training, training the mental side of things. This this is the opportunity to train that, not sitting at home doing a couple of chants. You have to be out there yeah. testing yourself. Yeah. Oh. Look, I, I I don't know what can, I, yeah. I I I don't know what draw what draws people to DNF, but you're right. It's like like I I I wouldn't want to be one of those guys who has ran on an injury and made it no, worse. No, most definitely. So I, I'd always be humble enough to say, Do you know what? Today is a DNF day. But I think, look, for me personally, I've always been um, into the training element and my strength and condition and I've picked up lots of injuries over the years playing football and different sports and um, I think it's some, sometimes it is just maybe people aren't experienced enough at knowing then what what the discomfort of a long ultramarathon is versus an actual injury and what they may feel warrants stepping off the course maybe didn't but I think that then at least for those type of runners that can come through experience. You, you might learn yes. the next day that, yeah, I've been here before and this isn't an injury. This is just a slog. This is just what ultra running is because it's a funny one. Like, you know, you've seen, you've seen the Olympics or any sort of track and field. Someone could pull up with a hamstring and you can see that hamstring has popped because they're running at such velocity that the, the, the force going through the muscles is quite phenomenal, I'd imagine. But for us plotters on the, the long stuff, like, it's more, it's just a grind. More often than not, yeah, you get swollen ankles, you're going to get swollen hands, you're going to have aches and pains and you really feel crap, but you're probably not injured. Unless you've done some sort of blunt trauma or twisted something really, really bad, you're probably just really, really sore. And, you know, um, that's, that's, that's what I tell myself. So like, I'd really want to have evidence of it being an injury before I'd stop. Um, I, I just, on that, on that morning way, John, like I had injuries from from um, twenty twenty from the end of twenty twenty. I was kind of carried an injury all in twenty twenty one, so I didn't have a great re- year of running. But getting to the Morn Way and having that little kind of episode where I could have and probably like, I I could have justified the DNF. So many things went wrong at all the same time, and as I said, I'd kind of ran my legs into the ground. But if I DNF then. I don't know what sort of race I would have had going into Kerry. Kerry was only about nine weeks after that. And that was my first big race in, like, it was my only race of the year prior to Kerry. It was going to be the only race I was going to do. And I just think that if I had not finished the Mourn Way, it would have been a very, it would have been very hard to be mentally strong going into the Kerry Way. Um, now, I didn't I didn't have to win the Mourn Way to feel confident, but the the completing it would have been so important. And I just... I think that was a huge, a huge boost for me. It's a huge learning curve. Um, so I really would, I'd, I'd really kind of, I'd, I'd encourage people when they are out, out in the course, if it's not an injury, suck it up. You'd be far better for it in the long run if you just suck it up and get on with it. And before you get to that point, you need to learn how to embrace discomfort and put yourself into uncomfortable situations. And that's where the training becomes important. 
you need to be doing yeah. long training runs specific to the event that you're doing getting out into yeah. the hills getting out on the days when it's miserable yeah. like what we were talking yeah. about you nearly turning back you didn't yeah yeah, and look, I like I don't I wouldn't I'd probably not give this uh, <laughs> this isn't sage advice to hear, but I used to go off um and I'd run like I'd plan my maybe four or five hour run, but I would only plan to carry water for three hours, water and food for three hours, knowing that the last two hours are gonna be a little bit of a suffer fest. Um and <laughs> I got it wrong a couple of times. Um but I just think that the the air stuff you 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 go back to when you're having a bit of a a, a lull in a race or whatever you can kind of just reflect back and say oh yeah I remember that time I was kind of you know <laughs> lying on a rock hoping for somebody just to find me um, when I'd ran out of food and fuel but like you know you know I did and I got up and I got on with it and I got home so I I, did, I, well, I I used to set those type of of kind of um, challenges to myself I stopped doing them. Um, but but I I think I think they were a, a kind of another tool in the arsenal mentally. What would you think is the most difficult part of a race? Would it be when you're standing at the start line and having that bit of uncertainty about all the things that could, how well you can actually manage the race or how many things could potentially go wrong? But when we spoke earlier about controlling the controllables. A trail run is an uncontrollable environment and it changes continuously. Like weather changes it. Do you stand on the start line so, uh, calm and collect or is there a bit of a adrenaline and a, a bit of fear of the unknown there? Um, yeah, a, a bit of both. Like, there's, there's a, there is a good buzz. I suppose, look, I've, I've, I've never stood on a starting line thinking I'm going to win this race. Uh, for everything I've gone into, I kind of have what my best day could look like. And uh, if I know who's racing, if that looks like I could be in the in the, the top, you know, the top end of the field, that's great. And for me, it's it's so it's less about at the starting line, it's less about the race. It's more about Let's see if I've put all this together and this is going to come to come to fruition today. So I I I don't worry too much about the racing element on the starting line. I'm just more excited. Obviously, the bigger the race, the more daunting it is because I don't know why you just you would just would get that kind of that a bit a bit of adrenaline from what's what's ahead of you. But um um yeah, within the race itself, then, geez, Jennifer, I've got the question now. <laughs> yeah, I edit this one out. <laughs> well, I I was kind of forgetting the the question as well. I was just listening to you, but yeah. you just you made Sorry. me take something there as well. Like you said, when you stand on the start line, okay, you you're not going out there to win, uh, mm-hmm. but your intention is is to win, based on on the times that you've uh, put down over the last couple of years. It looks to me as if you're running within yourself. You know, okay, I've done, I've done that so now I can I should be able to do this so you have a, a target and then the winning becomes a, a byproduct of that but when the opportunity presents itself you get into racing mode and there aren't a lot of surprises in these races with who's actually on the start line because there are always clues to who's going to be up there towards the front or for the most part there is mm-hmm. because yeah. you're seeing these guys doing other races they're not just turning up 
on the day, having ran yeah. the Dublin Marathon. They have served what we call the apprenticeship. They're taking part in the IMRA races. They're doing other yeah. events. They're, they're, they're seeking out long-distance trail events in Ireland. So chances are you're going to meet these people and you're finishing mm-hmm. these races close to them. So yeah. by the time you get there, you know who you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. The usual suspects. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, it's a, I'm not sure there's a question in that, is there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's going back to what I suppose what you said. It's, a, it's an observation. Okay, yeah. That, so you do know who your competition is when you're on the start line. And that, yeah, well... It, Here's a question for you, right? Okay, now I'm going to. Yeah. Now, it's it's a it's a long winded question. Now, I was in Madrid recently with Katrina Jennings, and yes. she was running into fifty kilometer European Championships. And yeah, the day before the race, I was going to the press conference with Katrina and a few other runners, and one guy, uh, his name is Dan Nash, he's an exercise physiologist. He's the fifty k UK record holder, and I was chatting to him in the taxi on the way and probably driving a mad with all the questions and then I, an answer he gave would lead to another question so yeah. he was telling me about his race plan and I'd already been talking to Katrina about her so part of what Katrina was planning on doing was putting the 50k record a bit more out of reach for anyone else so that that was part of part of her plan so the race is going to be going to build around that after the press conference, we went and did a training run on the course. A few of the GB athletes, myself and Katrina, or should I say Katrina and myself, because I was the hanger on there. At the end of the run, Katrina said to me that the, the plan has changed. Based on the environmental conditions and the actual course, that she wasn't going chasing any records, that she was just going to get herself into a race. So I knew then how to, I suppose, crew and observe her on, on yeah. the day. And that's what she, she stayed within the actual racing group. And Dan was out towards the front and then Dan started to fall back. And we still ran a very impressive time. But I'd be curious now to know off Dan, did his race plan change or was the plan the plan? Yeah. So yeah. when you're on the start line, does your, or would your, plan kind of change based on who's around you or is that a question you want to answer <laughs> um no my the, um, the plan wouldn't change based on who's on the start line with me but the plan is probably based around who's on the start line and what i mean is like if i know so this year going to carry i know a couple of the front runners there just from getting from strava and Stephen mangan had ran the race the previous year or two and I knew, I knew Stephen was Stephen's a, a phenomenal kind of um, runner. Like he's he's extremely fit and strong, but he's also extremely gritty. So he was he was certainly not going to DNF. Um, Mickey Brennan was another kind of strong contender for the day, but I only know Mickey through Strava and a couple of events that he had done. I think Mickey's quite new to running, so he didn't have much um, history, you know, for me to kind of you know stalk him on. But um, a couple of other runners, obviously, the carry way, they did a kind of a race uh, preview of, they could kind of like a profile of a couple of runners, which is great and good information as well. But, um, like, no one who's coming up, it was more where we're kind of probably, there was a conversation started around sub-22 hours. 
and there seemed to be a bit of a, a, a kerfuffle being made about that. Now, I had been talking to John McHugh, the previous course record holder, and John was very supportive of me and very encouraging for me to take on his record that he didn't set last year when he did a phenomenal race. But so I started talking to John about it and talking to Ricky. I, I talk a lot to Ricky about the running as well. And then obviously my Lara McAvoy, my crew member, and, you know, another kind of solid person to talk to about all this. So I started making my plan. But factoring in the other guys as well, knowing that he was possibly going to be there. There's some guys that I, I didn't know anything about. There was an Argentinian guy rocking up. And again, based on his profile, was going to be a very, very strong contender. Uh, Martin, who was a strong contender. But I kind of set out my plan then to run fast at the start, to have a good kind of fast pace. And I I planned that on all the runnable sections, I kind of I figured that I had probably a natural kind of um, slightly faster pace than the others based on what I could see on their Strava and their, their, their runs. So I built my plan around running certain sections faster and and treating the hills as recovery recovery sections and that the plan was that incrementally over the over the distance of the race um i was kind of you know um hoping that that would just give me the edge on the guys so so the plan didn't change based on who was beside me the plan was created based on who i knew was going to be there and how what, what i might need to do to um get the upper hand on them oh that's a great answer now, something we didn't really touch on is race day nutrition. Mm-hmm. What would you take with you along the way? Um, for all races, I suppose it's it's more or less the same. Uh, but with staying specifically on Kerry, um, I have my my vest, and I would have probably at all at all the time I'd have probably a liter, so two five hundred ml bottles, uh, some tailwind and those I'd have maybe. Depending on, like, I have a variety of snacks then from the Stroop waffle, kind of, you know, the sugary waffle kind of discs that are just pure sugar. Um, I'd have bounty bars, I'd have sports gels. Um, not much else after that, kind of, I'd kind of just cycle through those. And and um, so at each aid station, I would obviously carry enough water, carrying the calories. I'd have salt tabs um, for each station as well. And then just planning at certain stages of the race, not for every stop, at certain points, I'd have, Lara would have like coffee ready and or I'd have a caffeine tailwind or a caffeine gel just to kind of keep, uh, to throw that into the system as well. But again, all somewhat structured. I kind of know my, know roughly my calorie per hour. I know my, my water per hour and I know my sauce per hour. That, that would kind of give me my optimal kind of, you know, um, fueling strategy. So I'm not going to try and avoid the good bombs or, or, you know, clogging up the stomach. So, just that, like, and kind of just repeating that. The tailwind was probably um, in every bottle up until maybe Temple No, and then I probably just went to fresh water and probably started eating it a little bit more because it was colder and darker. And you know, you have John. Like, when it gets cold and dark, you probably drink less fluid. Uh, so I didn't want to be relying on the nutrition purely based on the drinks. So I probably started eating a little bit more. Um, I find the bounty bars um, are. <laughs> little, oh, the little gems in a race. I think they're just so easy to to digest, and they're a nice little kind of about 150 calories in them. Um, I think I had some donuts. I think a couple of other guys. There's a picture of me going around. I was eating a donut from Waterville, and a couple of lads are having a good laugh at that. But like, that was my treat for doing 100k. 
Uh, but yeah, look, I, I, the, the baseline is tailwind in the bottles, not the full uh, dosage. I kind of half the dose of tailwind, and I make up the calories in some level of of bite sized treats, and then there's salt tabs mixed in there, and as I said, the caffeine uh, peppered along the way as well. You've mentioned Lara a few times. How important <laughs> do you think a crew member is? Um, I know it was what the guy's name who done it a couple of years ago and had the uh, is it Barry Hartnett. Barry Harton, yes. I think Barry done it without a crew, right? Which is incredible, and and it gets, it's phenomenal running, and it's. I think it, I think he can demonstrate that you can do it without a crew. Barry probably didn't but, know that you needed a crew. Right? <laughs> that was the thing. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I think I think phenomenal uh, phenomenal athlete, and and um, um, I'd I'd imagine the difference between Barry's time. You know, because I, I don't consider myself a phenomenal athlete, but the difference between Barry's time, which is probably 22 and a half hours, and my time of 21 and 20 is Larry McAvoy. So, you know, if if I don't have a crew, a if I don't have a crew, yeah, look, if you don't have a crew, you can pick up your bag, you can do your bits and pieces, but you're losing time. Um, but it's it's not just that. It's coming into the aid station. It's... It, well, it, it, just having stuff ready, but there's a bit of problem solving going on there. But there's the there's the mental aspect of it. Like I was close to DNF and John in Glen Bay this year. Like the race was very warm and the race was going too fast. I was in third place. Uh, Mickey and Stephen were out in front, and I just thought I don't think I have 140k in my legs. And like Lar was the guy who just didn't entertain any negative talk. He Changed out my bottle, had them back in my vest. You know, we had notes about all the sections. So he's there, he's telling me about what's coming up, telling me about the hills, what's ahead of me, what my plan is. Um, he's giving me feedback on the guys in front, you know, and he's talking to other crew members, so he knows, knows what's going on. And before I knew it, he had walked me up the first big hill that would have been, at the time, it would have, like, to me, seemed like a mountain to take on, but just, it's just through a forest park. But, and then he was like, like no, I'll see you and file more. Go on, stop, stop giving out, and that was it. Um, and I just think there's probably several occasions in every race or at each, each of the stations that there's that sort of dynamic where he's just getting getting you back up and running. So, yeah, it's it's it, it like as I said, you can do them without a crew. You won't do them fast without a crew. And I think there's too many things could go wrong. Um, and one of those being the the the, the mental aspect. So. Yeah, like I, I've I've been very, very clear. I, I always say it's we 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 done the carry from the get go. Me and Lara were doing carry away. It was such a team event. Although it was a team of two. Um, you know, but it's it's something we achieve together. He'd come down every year, um, giving up his time. He listens to me talk about it all the time in the build up to the races. Um, he listens to me giving out during the race and still comes down at me. So like I I've yeah. I, I, I'm so appreciative and so grateful for that. I suppose the big difference there is he also wants you to succeed. Yeah. And yeah. You've yeah, given a very good yeah. answer there and a very informative answer. And I hope that anyone listening in who's planning on doing the Kerry Ultra this year will take that on board when they're deciding whether or not to have a crew with them. And just going back to Barry Hartnett, a few years ago, I had suggested to Barry that he try the Morris Mullins Ultra. And he said to me that he didn't, he'd never been in the mountains around Wicklow, so he wouldn't know the way. So I said to him, well, look, all you have to do is follow the person in front of you. And he nearly <laughs> didn't have a person in front of him to follow. So I think he finished second that yeah. year. So he had a very good run. I was chatting to him yeah. and 
I'd heard a few of the race results that he was getting and it didn't really make sense. And I had asked him, did you get those results by training for them or did you just get those results from the training you were doing? So it sounded like he was just training and he had that talent from living in a hilly area. And there you go, he went and did the... He had set a record in the Caribbean Ultra, didn't he, the, the, the year he did it? Yeah. I think, was was he doing Ironmans? Was he a very competitive yes, Ironman? Yes, he, he was a triathlete, yeah. that's right. I, I, I can just, I just think, you know, uh, at, a, at the, the, the higher, the high end, the, kind of the, the more kind of elite level Ironman athletes, I think they just have a phenomenal um, fitness base. You know, to do the three disciplines at, a, at at the pace they do, they're just phenomenally kind of well-rounded athletes anyway. Yes, I think so. So, yeah. Because... Yeah. With the way they train, it allows you to do a higher volume of training because you're not just pounding your legs off the ground or you're not just mm-hmm. pedaling pedaling the bike. And it's all training your cardiovascular system. Your heart doesn't know that you're cycling or, or it doesn't know the difference between cycling and running. It just knows yeah. that it's having to pump blood out to those working muscles. So it's yeah. it's all yeah. working the body aerobically. And then suppose the real secret is the recovery between the training sessions and there's probably yeah. a lot more yeah. research has been done on triathlon than uh, any other supposed sport that would be similar like running cycling on its mm-hmm. own or there's there, there's money in as well that's why that's it i was just gonna say yeah there's the money yeah you know it's interesting to say that about the cardio the, the cardio fitness and the, the heart only knows the effort it doesn't know the sport uh, in, I think it was 2019 when I was training for Dublin I picked up an injury about four weeks into training and because I do the heart rate base training um, I just took to the indoor rower and I did like pretty much nine or ten weeks of my full running program on the rower so like my, my threshold runs it transfers across very similarly in terms of it's very easy to control your heart rate as you are running but even the paces on the rower are kind of similar so like if my threshold pace was maybe like a, a 350 kilometer pace on the rower it's kind of very very similar um so like a, a, a long slow run pace whatever that might be per, per kilometer was kind of transferred onto the onto the row machine as well so i did um yeah about nine or ten weeks of rowing as my training got back running with about just for the taper and ran my second fastest marathon uh, so it was phenomenal to see that the fitness was nearly the exact same um and the legs were fresh enough I'm assuming that's the Concept2 rower. The Concept2 rower, yeah. yeah. If you actually yeah. go onto their website, the concept2.co.uk, they actually have training plans on the site specific to running and other events. No, no way. Okay. And the difference between rowing as a way of cross-training rather than cycling, cycling, you just use the lower part of the body, really. But with mm-hmm. rowing, you use, it's a full-body movement. So your heart rate yeah. would be similar to what it would be in running minus the yeah. you know you don't have the same kind of impact on the body but of course yeah you do need the impact as well just as i mentioned that i've seen some guy posting yeah. something on instagram do these exercises instead of running I'm kind of, why is it always that kind of comparison do this instead of that don't just do the yeah, exercise yeah, yeah. why not ref why reference running yeah if somebody yeah, is yeah, a runner they yeah. ha- if somebody though is a runner and they're training for a race they have to run there's no you can't substitute something else for it Maybe in no, the sh- no, what no. you're doing is you're you're filling a gap. You're doing what you can because you can't do something else. But you know that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Now, like the, your body needs to go through the impact, you know, you need your ligaments, your joints, the, the tissues, they need to be strengthened and they only do that by the loading as well. Um, but uh, it was just interesting to see. I, I wasn't I wasn't as aware of that kind of that the, the correlation or the kind of the transfer, but it was great when I started doing it. I was like, oh, wow, this is and I enjoyed it. I really got into the rowing then, John. I actually kind of up until maybe last year, I kind of always spent time in the road then based on that because I just found it to be a pretty good workout as well. If you know, you know. <laughs> you were doing something that you knew was working. You you, you know, knew yeah. by, by the feel of the exercise that it was yeah. something that was beneficial. We talked a bit about uh, the importance of a support crew who would help you during the race and Jorlar was probably helping with your preparation. Is there anything else you do in your preparation leading up to an event like this? Um, well, I, I don't think anybody gets through a full training program without picking up a few niggles, a few aches and strains. And I've been very lucky that, again, uh, one of my friends from back home who, who we're playing football with, um, who would not to be a physiotherapist, Stephen McGowan, he has, again, he's always been very, very generous with his time and his knowledge. So um, not only would he have me on the treat, treatment table whenever I, I needed to be, but just being able to pick up the phone and talking through stuff I may be coming off a training week or a block, heavy block, kind of picked up a few kind of aches and pains. Just be able to talk to him, tell him what I was doing and tell him what's coming up. And um, you know yourself, going into the start of a race, you're carrying some of those knocks and those bumps and bruises. So just having Stephen's support to be able to kind of give you that reassurance of what your experiencing is, you know, probably nothing nothing significant and how to maybe manage it in, in race day as well has been a kind of a, it's been a huge asset and, and it's a real support and gives you great confidence then on the starting line. And it means when the pain does kind of um, make itself known that you know that it's, you know, you have the confidence to kind of just to ignore it and get on with the, get on with the um, running. Yeah, I totally agree with that because I think an injury can really affect someone's confidence. And sometimes when you have an injury, it can feel like that's it. It's it's game over. You're not going to recover from yeah. it. Like sometimes the pain just makes you feel like that's it. I'm, I'm giving this up. Now, I can remember yeah. talking to you. I'm not sure whether it was late or early last year and you were going for an MRI. Was that last year? Um, yeah, it would have been 20... It could have been the start of this year, actually, John. But I picked up an injury after doing Kerry in 2020. Um, when we were in the middle of the, the, the lockdown, there was a, one of the like you know big backyard ultras. It was kind of like an international event, a satellite world championship, it was called. And we had like a, a team from Ireland, so we went up to the north of Ireland. And it was like I think there was maybe 15 of us. We ran the last one standing, and there's there's countries all over the world competing at the same time. It's been broadcast maybe on a YouTube channel around the world. Um, but that was six weeks after the Carryway Ultra, so it was too much. It was like I think I ran 200k that day as well. So two big races before DNF. Like I suppose the nature of that race, you have to DNF if you're not going to win it. Uh, and I certainly wasn't going to win it that day with the with the caliber of guys that was there. But the I I, I kind of was very sore after taking my a, a lower limb, kind of the ankle, foot, and the calf muscles, lots of pains. Nothing that I kind of felt I needed to deal with apart from rest and recovery, but I kind of, I didn't deal with it and it kept reoccurring all throughout 2021. I actually ran, I got as far as the carry away in 2021 with the with the injury there because it's one of those, you know when you get a low level injury and it's kind of, it's never too sore to stop running, but it never goes away and it flares up and gets really bad and you take a week, a week or two off then you get back training, you've been up a few weeks of good training and then it flares up again. I just went through that cycle for a few months 
And then before I knew it, it was in the middle of the carry again and I just didn't have time to take off to really address the issue. So I just had to kind of manage that through 2021. So I think I mentioned earlier on in, 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 in 2021 the race, I, I, I probably only had 100k in my legs on race day. The the remaining 100k was a real kind of just a... It was just very hard to very hard to um, to run it. I was very lucky that I ran with Ricky for for like ninety five percent of that race. Um, I think uh, Ricky would be happy to say that he he was working with me to get him around the course. But I think he he became aware on the day, and I've told him many times since that he got me home. That if I sat there by myself in twenty twenty one, I'm not sure how what sort of result it would have got because, as I said, I had a, I had a lot of discomfort based on that injury. But yeah, it was only then, John, I realised I got to actually do something with it. That I'd I just got into that cycle of trying to manage it rather than deal with it. So I started going to um sorry, I got an appointment, got an MRI and luckily nothing significant nothing significantly wrong wrong with it. I just needed to actually stop running, do lots of strength and conditioning work and change footwear and do a few other bits and pieces and get back running. Which was possibly the best thing to happen to me because it kind of reset me for 2022. So I took pretty much five months off after Kerry Way last year. So I didn't run from September right through to probably, probably in around February or March this year. And as I said, I only started back training in around February or March for the, for the morning way race in the lead up to Kerry. But it was possibly the best thing to happen because it forced me into dealing with the, um, with the injury. That's a better comeback story than Rocky. <laughs> but my takeaway from that is that if you have an injury don't get yourself more injured go and, yeah. and get professional help talk to somebody see somebody who knows what they're doing do what you're told to do be patient yeah. and you'll you should soon be back where you want to be back on that start line yeah no i 100 agree um it was foolish of me i was just I was probably just being lazy about it, kind of going, ah, you know, it's, it's like going back to that earlier conversation about knowing the difference between a niggle and an actual injury. Yes. The, and that comes the, from the experience. Just, yeah. And, and, you know, like just the, the nature of it, it was a tendon issue. Um, and, you know, your tendons can get, can get quite sore, but possibly not sore enough to warrant you doing anything about it. And it's just, it, it would flare up, it would be quite bad but nothing in anti-inflammatory wouldn't deal with. So that was kind of, that became the, the, the regime then. You know, when it got really bad, just kind of take a few painkillers and, and rest at nicer and then get back training. Uh, but it was the wrong, it was a very, very wrong approach. Uh, as you said there, the best thing I could have done then was deal with the injury when, I, when, it, when it first occurred. Uh, get the medical advice, you know, do what they tell you, you know. Um, and yeah, as I said, it turned out to be the best thing to happen because it, it left me so fresh. And when I got back running in 2022, I... I didn't know myself. I had a power uh, uh, in my stride and uh, an ability to run up the hills that I hadn't had in the previous year. Um, I just got so used to running on a bit of a lame leg. So, yeah. We've gone through a lot there now over, over the last year. We've talked about your, your training, your racing strategy, your racing mentality, your training mentality. We've talked a bit about your nutrition, your kit, support crew, and the extra stuff that you do with regards getting massage and physio and also your background. So I think we've more or less covered everything we, we need to cover and hopefully someone doing the Kerry Way Ultra in 2023 will 
get something from this. Hopefully not finish ahead of you, but they get something <laughs> of, of use uh, from this. So thanks so much for your time, Keith, and I'll talk to you soon. Brilliant, John. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed this or any of the other podcasts, you might consider leaving a review, passing it on to a friend, and until next time.